Good morning and welcome to the latest Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast with me, John Holtzman. I am just back from my trip to Athens and the fantastic The Network Forum group where I saw Andrew Barman and the gang. And uh, one of the key signs that we joke about um, in my firm is that an event is good if I lose my voice. If I engaged with enough people and did enough work over the time that I go hoarse by the end of it, it means the event was good. And by that standard, the network forum uh, crushed me. I uh, just regained my voice today in time to keep my record going of doing at least one of these a week. Um, and it was a wonderful event. We played. The keynote was great. And I got great feedback from the people. It led to a ton of discussions, which is always the good part. And then we played a war game on the post-Ukraine world. But we really looked in detail, and because this event was in Europe, at the EU. Um, and this is where we're going to continue our the world through the various great powers' eyes. We've looked at the Anglosphere. We've looked at Japan. We've looked at China, we've looked at the United States, and we have the EU and Russia to go. And given what's going on with Prigozhin's mutiny in uh, Rostov-on-Don today, I thought I'd save the best for last. I thought I'd save Russia for last. So we had a clearer picture of what was going on, and I could feed that into what I talked to you guys about next week. Obviously, if there are further developments there, we'll do one of our emergency podcasts to bring you up to date on that. And we're keeping a a very good eye on that, as you might guess. But I thought I'd do the EU because we had many good discussions about that at the Network Forum. As always, it's a fantastic group. I've done the gig before. And of course, as you get to know the people and become friends with them and friendly with them, you can be candid. You can get off the talking points and actually drill down together. And that's why I'm hoarse. I had so many fantastic uh, conversations with so many interesting people. It really does uh, help my work, and I hope it helps theirs as well. But I'd like to go through that now and do the world through the EU's eyes. Next week, of course, we're cramming on the book. Uh, I hope to write the conclusion. We're at Knockwood a couple weeks ahead of schedule. Get the conclusion done ahead of my 4th of July speech to the defeated British in London. That's fantastic. Uh, my friend Chris Sanford in Investec, where I'm going to talk about the history of American grand strategy and start trying out ideas from the book before we hit that hard. And again, many of you have asked, The Last Best Hope will be available to buy pre-order, which is the name of the game on Amazon, in September. So all systems are go, full speed ahead. And without further ado, the world through the EU's eyes. The key factors for any great power really haven't changed since the time of the ancient Greeks. As I just saw the Acropolis, I'm thinking about my fascination with the classics and really, the, the, the attributes of a great power haven't changed. We're always talking in the TED Talk universe about what's new. And we forget what's profound and old. And that's where, again, my firm doing history, as it's touched on, I think has given us a huge advantage. In terms of our call record and our analysis, we look at what's continuous. And what's continuous for a great power is that you have a standing army that works well. Uh, that, that, that is a world beater in that way, that you have vibrant economic growth that's ongoing and predictable, and that you have unity, that you have a unitary foreign policy decision-making uh, that can quickly in crises act. And by all these standards, the EU, for all its many good qualities, falls short. Obviously, it doesn't have a standing army. As I said to a leading German general, only slightly in jest, my high school could take your army. If you have three days ammunition, as the Germans did at one point for, e for Ukraine-style fighting, 
you simply aren't serious and I don't have to worry about it. There's a price that comes from being a lotus eater. Yes, you get the advantage that you can retire at the age of 14. Yes, you can live off, you can free ride off your allies like the United States. In the case of NATO, where scarcely any Europeans meet the 2% standard, the French are close, and indeed only the French can do full-spectrum military th operations. Within NATO, other, the only EU country that can, from high-end war fighting to low-end peacekeeping, but France is alone. Everybody else can do some interesting niche things. But despite its huge market, there's vast duplication of military resources. Does every European country need to have one frigate is a reasonable question. And really, France is the only one who can do everything from high end to low end. And almost none of the countries meet the 2% standard, which, although incredibly annoying for the United States, leading to populism and a desire to do less in Europe, is worse for the Europeans because having only carrots and not sticks in the world works only if you live in a world populated entirely by rabbits. And the problem is that we've seen that in our new era, pretty much everyone other than the EU inside the garden is a tiger outside. There's a nationalist populist of one kind or another, be that the United States, India, China, Japan, the Anglosphere. Pretty much every other great power um, is a nationalist populist that knows that you need sticks as well as carrots. The world is not populated by rabbits, as Mr. Putin proves every day along with Xi Jinping, and indeed even allies such as the United States, India, and the Anglosphere. So from the EU's point of view, they've gambled that history had ended and gambled badly and wrongly, and so this is a giant problem, not having a military. The second giant problem is that they don't have sustained 2% growth. Betting against Europe as a whole throughout my political risk career has not been a difficult call because there is more than a little wish fulfillment in the EU people who do analysis. And indeed, one of the problems is so many of them are funded by the EU themselves. Obviously, they're not going to bite the hand that feeds them, nor are they likely because they look at the EU as a religious thing rather than a geostrategic analysis going to go against things. And indeed, I've been confronted by this logical fallacy among EU cheerleaders for a long time. When something goes right with the EU, this is a sign that it's going to be a great power and rival America ultimately for dominance. And when something goes wrong with the EU, this is the crisis that's going to make it turn it around. This cheerful, mindless Hegelianism that every single antithesis will lead to a new thesis that somehow the EU, because it has problems, will magically overcome them flies in the face of all history. There are plenty of examples of people who didn't overcome their problems. The Romans never figured out their borders um, and never figured out how to deal with internal decay. The British, for all that they had an incredibly able colonial service, never figured out how such a small area the size of the state of Alabama could run the rest of the world. This was an inherent problem. The Spanish never worked their way through inflation, so the Spanish Empire came to its end. Because you have a problem, you don't magically solve it. The Kaiser never figured out how to deal with Britain and overcome its dreadnought advantage, even as Russia was breathing down its neck after the Stolypin reforms of the early 1900s. I could go on and on and on. The ahistorical whistling by the graveyard notion that you solve your problems once you have them rationally, that everyone would agree, flies in the face of all of recorded history. It's wishful thinking. It's magical thinking. It's not empirical thinking. And I've, I've been struck by this, that if the EU is successful, it's a sign of its success. And if it fails, it's a sign of its success. This is, frankly, I wouldn't hire these people to be my interns. 
um, the cheerleaders. And this gets in the way of Europeans looking at themselves rationally. And it's always hard for any great power, the people within it, the hardest thing is to look in the mirror. Because as we saw, and to dare more boldly, uh, one of our, our political risk basic core elements is the idea that the political risk can be us. And nobody nobody likes to look in the mirror, but it's vital if you're going to get anywhere and to solve your problems. And the EU simply doesn't do this. For so long, I heard that the EU, and these are the words that were used, it's post-national, post-modern. And what this meant, I mean, I, I know enough about Umberto Eco and semiotics. What this meant was that they've moved beyond the Neanderthal knuckle-draggers of the nationalists who run India and China and the United States, etc. When indeed, I think the European Union is the past. It's not the, it's not the present, and it's certainly not the future. And the reason for this is it has no army, it has no economic growth, and it has no unity over foreign affairs. And this is a, this is a major problem. Uh, they think that, and this is the jolt, that they're the, the future and they're the past. What they are, as they came out of the 1950s and 1960s, when Europe's productivity was the envy of the world, um, and they assumed that ad nauseum and set up a benefit system based on being the most productive people in the world, when now they're among the least productive people in the world. And yet nobody's going to get rid of those benefits, that they are baked into the cake. And if you even would argue about limiting them, there are, as we've seen, would be riots in French streets. And so you can't be serious when you're stuck in a time warp of about 1958-59. And that's the problem, ultimately, intellectually. But the 2% growth number, this is the bottom number for a society, an advanced industrial economy such as the United States or the EU has, to have enough money to get things done. Because you have to factor in immense debt, debt rates now in the United States, but certainly in Europe, which can't begin to pay for its six weeks holiday in terms of its productivity anymore. You see this over and over again. The Italian debt rate is over 150%. A laugh line I got at the network forum was, does anybody really think the Italians are going to pay back their debt or the French are going to pay back their debt for that matter? Or even the Germans are going to pay that their debt or the Spanish are going to pay back theirs. The Franco-German motor of Europe it's not growing at 2%. Germany is in a shallow recession right now. We'll get back to that in a minute. Um, and no one else is anywhere near 2%. Unlike the United States, which has bounced back, and for all its income disparity and many problems, it is still far more economically dynamic. It will regularly grow at 2%. And that gives it the money, the wherewithal, to do things with that money, to invest in its military, to invest in its people, to invest in all kinds of things. If you don't grow at 2%, you're merely fighting over a stagnant pie. Italian GDP is roughly right now what it was before it entered the euro. That's a staggering number. A whole generation of lost growth. And yet no Italian wants to give up their vacations or their benefits ludicrous as they are to sustain. People don't die at 62 anymore. People die in their 80s, and yet pensions stretch out as far as the eye can see. And indeed, until recently, the last generation, who I dislike intensely, the generation older than me, retired in their 50s and has been sucking at the tit of the Italian state for 30 years. This is laughable and unsustainable. And Europe is stagnant. It's stagnant. It isn't producing the next apple the next Microsoft. There are no new industries. There's no new areas of growth at the macro level. 
There are plenty of individually really interesting European companies. I work with a lot of them. I love Europe. I'm not saying this out of any happiness. It would be wonderful for me if Europe were a rising great power and the United States could pivot toward Asia and leave Europe to do what it ought to do, which is control North Africa, the Balkans, and deal with Mr. Putin, while the United States worried more and more about the Indo-Pacific. That trade would be wonderful. And indeed, I think the United States should make it anyway. But the trade is far better if you have a vibrant, growing, confident Europe. And we have none of that. Beyond the fact that there's no dynamism to be seen in the onerous social benefits in a Europe living in 1950s benefits with not 1950s productivity rates, you have the problem of the German economy, which is the motor of Europe. The German economy was basically based on a simple proposition. You have cheap Russian gas, uh, oil, and, and uh, natural gas inputs to high-end German manufacturing to exports. Germany is the most export-dominated country in the world, and these exports tended to go to China. So the inputs come from cheap Russian energy, high-end German technology to export to China. This now is polit politically, in terms of risk, problematic both ways. And this explains the chronic failure of the Merkel administration. She's the Neville Chamberlain, or even better, the Stanley Baldwin of the early 2000s when I was told arrogantly by upteen German officials who should all be fired, we can handle the Russians. It doesn't matter where we get our oil or natural gas from. Political risk isn't real. The Russians would never mess with us as we're their largest market and they'd never do anything to upset the apple cart. This, this magical thinking has come home to roost. And when there's been an embargo, the Germans are scrambling. We've now got green leaders like Robert Habeck mining coal to keep the lights on in Germany, considering nuclear power after Merkel outlawed it to move up, to move around the ranks of the Greens after the Fukushima disaster. This was all, as always with Merkel, great tactics and terrible strategy. And as a result of this terrible strategy, we see Germany that's now scrambling for the next year. Now, all of a sudden, the hated American fracking is fine to keep the lights on. Doing business with Qatar is fine. Maybe we should do more with Norway, but all this is very, very late in the game, a day late and a dollar short. And that's where bad analysis really bites you. And that's what's happening at the moment. In Germany, their entire economic model is called into question. They'll scramble this next year. We have to have another mild winter to keep the lights on. And then the um, onboarding of liquid, liquefied natural gas in Willemschaven and other northern German ports will work, but it's still at least a year away. And this next year, this next winter is going to be very problematic for Germany and indeed the rest of Europe uh, as they scramble yet again. They did a very good job scrambling last year and they were lucky from the mild winter. But more importantly, um, they, they because of a political, a colossal political risk failure under Merkel and the Lotus Eaters, where they didn't think any of this mattered, they're now paying the piper. And so the German economic model is going to be problematic even if they do scramble. And without the German economic mo motor, game over. Game over. And so this is another reason that Europe is in decline, obviously, market decline. And then the third reason is the simple fact of unity. And here I have great sympathy. Um, Basically, states in Europe still run their foreign policies based on their own national interests, as any good realist would tell you. The problem is we couldn't get 27 or 28 countries to agree on an ice cream flavor 
let alone something as important as foreign policy. And you see the differences. If you live in Italy, as I do, foreign policy is about North Africa and dealing with perceived migration problems. They want the war in Ukraine. The people do in polling, at least according to the European Council on Foreign Relations. They want people, uh, they want the war in Ukraine to end as soon as possible so they can go back to getting oil from the Russians. And that's their foreign policy. For the French, they want Europe to act as a unified whole. Macron rightly sees they don't have a common army and that they won't be taken seriously until they do because the world is not a debating society, that it's based on power and that they're falling behind and they have to unify and do qualified majority voting for more strategic and foreign policy matters. But this is met with a deafening silence in Olaf Scholz's Germany wishing Germany were Liechtenstein rather than being Germany, a nice little well-run German country that's economically vibrant and didn't have to worry about foreign affairs. But Germany has had, under Merkel, Liechtenstein's foreign policy for 20 years, and look what it's gotten us. Germany on foreign policy is a black hole where all of Macron's ideas go to die. Um, and they have very different views about what to do about the United States. Uh, if you're in Spain, for instance, you don't care about NATO spending. It's about 0.9%. It's nothing. It's three guys. And again, my football team could take the Spanish army. They're not worried about that. They're worried about North Africa. It depends on where you geographically sit still. And so to corral the cats to get, I, I know this from having five, to get 27, 28 countries to agree on fundamentally complicated things about nuance dealing with Russia, China, the United States is nigh on an impossibility. And I have nothing but sympathy for European diplomats. But the fact remains that if you can't do that and don't have a unitary foreign policy in the way, say, Mr. Putin does, that rightly or wrongly, he can decide decisively to act, as can she, as can even the United States, which has a unitary foreign policy that's constitutionally run by the president, who, if you read the Constitution, is easily first among equals in foreign policy terms. So for all these reasons, uh, not having a vibrant economy, uh, not understanding that demography matters where Europe is, is dying. Southern Europe's rates of growth are about at the Chinese level. Spain, Greece, Italy, Portugal. If you're growing, if you have 1.3 people and the replacement rate is 2.1, who's going to pay taxes uh, on all those uh, six-week holidays? You can't raise taxes much more than they already exist. So there's that. You have political disunity, a lack of an army, a lack of economic vibrancy. These are simply facts. I'm not happy about them, but they must, must, must be addressed. And then Europe has a decision to make, as worked out in our war game, which was very well played by the European team. Europe can be the sick man of the world. It can be a museum where you live and it's very comfortable. I love living in Europe. I'm much happier here personally than I was in the United States at the time working. Um, it's a delightful place to be, and it will be for the rest of my life. Every year, like the sick man of Europe that was Turkey at the time in the Ottoman Empire, if you get just a little bit less competent, no one will notice. There's no great crisis that's going to upend Europe. It simply matters less than it did 10 years ago when I did work in political risk, certainly than 20 years ago. And that can be a choice. You can be a lotus eater for a very long time. For the rest of my life, Europe will be a very nice place to live, but it will simply matter less and less and less. And so when Europe, the world through Europe's eyes, given this background, it looks out at other rising powers. One of its hopes would be to do more with India and the developing world, because India is the ultimate rising power. Goldman rightly finally got right that the three great economic powers of 2050 are all going to be Indo-Pacific countries, the United States, China, and India. 
and you have to have some sort of alliance with them. Um, a lot of people in Europe would like to do more with China, despite the fact that, that they're embarrassed, that they're an autocracy and may make a jump for um, Taiwan. Nobody expects the Europeans, as polling shows, to do much in, in, in regarding if China does start a war over Taiwan because their economic trading interests are so profoundly there. They have to somehow stay roughly on side with the United States which still supplies their security as they've painfully become aware in Ukraine where the U.S. has given more to the Ukrainians than all of the Europeans put together. And again, there is a giant problem if the United States cares more about European security than the lotus eaters in Europe do. That can't continue indefinitely, nor should it, nor will it. But they have to have some sort of relationship there and then they do an awful lot more with India. But they have to act and ally with one or more of these powers in a decisive factor, and this is the key problem, I just use the word decisive. The EU is many things. The EU is a delightful place to live, but acting decisively, to put it mildly, is not its forte for all the reasons that I've said before. For this, the world looks like a frightening place outside the European garden because the tigers are getting more and more violent. The EU is being listened to less and less for these basic power reasons. And the wonderful entity that is Europe is going to matter little, little by little, less and less. And that's simply where we are. I'm very unhappy to say this. Uh, the U.S. and EU doing more and making a basic trade over the EU's near abroad where it does more. And the United States does more in the Indo-Pacific. This is still the last best hope, to coin a phrase, for the European Union to do more with the United States, to agree to do these basic things next door, to get a lot more, to have the United States take a backseat there as it moves and pivots to the Indo-Pacific. But other than this, look for the EU to simply matter less and less, while as lotus eaters, they enjoy that last party. Thank you very much. Sorry to be depressing about the world through the EU's eyes, but it was a fascinating meeting confronting Europeans with these painful realities. And now it's a simple matter. It's a time to act as Macron would like, which I hope is the case, or it's a time to say we're never going to act. Let's enjoy that last drink. I hope you've enjoyed this. So many of you have subscribed. We're incredibly grateful that this is booming. I love doing these. And I kept my word despite not having a voice and despite just getting back from my upteenth trip to do one of these a week at a minimum. And we'll keep doing it next week unless things come up with Mr. Prigozhin. We'll do the world through Russia's eyes to finish the Great Power series and then move on from there. For those of you who have subscribed, though, please do give. We're only asking $70 um, for a year, which is basically $7 a month or $70 a year, which is even easier. The price of the vaunted cappuccino or the espresso I've just made sitting next to me. I'm glad to be back home with my espresso machine, and I'm happily going to have one now. Great to see you. Please do give the $70 so we can keep these going, and please do subscribe. On to the next, and everybody have a great week.